0: everybody and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here and I'm joined by Don as usual. Today we have returning guest Khalid, and we are going to be talking about the occult, esotericism, traditionalism, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, so maybe we should start off here defining our terms, something like that. Like what is esotericism? What is the occult? Like that term, I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with it, but what what are we going to be talking about exactly? Like what what is this thing? Like
1: The occult is probably the most interesting of those terms to me uh, because it pivots on the connotation of hiddenness and cultism obviously encompasses like many different things, like many different ideas. But at its core, I feel like, you know, in terms of what it denotes, uh, it denotes the idea that there's some sort of hidden structure or meaning uh, behind events. It kind of creates a certain dualism between exoteric and esoteric, where there's an external aspect to, to practice, uh, behavior, society, and then uh, there's a hidden aspect. And that's esoteric and hidden. You can kind of go hand in hand when things are inside. They're sort of presumed to be hidden. Um, and that's the idea that there's uh, sort of hidden. And, you know, of course, I think maybe I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but it's definitely one of the recurring tropes of uh, esotericism or occultism, that it's sort of privileged information or privileged knowledge that only certain elite people have access to. And that, you know, is really uh, the most basic definition that one can uh, provide of, of what the occult is. Um, and of course, you know, this uh, is tied in, in many ways to sort of traditionalism, uh, a lot of times sort of the idea of lost knowledge, you know, lost knowledge within one culture or within all cultures that, you know, maybe people are trying to bring back uh, through kind of a vanguard of people with special knowledge or special access to that information.
0: Right. And when, you, when you're when you talking about traditionalism, we're talking about capital T traditionalism. Yes. A, yeah. a very particular spiritual movement, I guess you could call it, something along those lines.
1: Yeah. Uh, that would basically be like, you know, what René Guénon and like uh, Evelà were very influential in sort of uh, shaping. And yeah, the basic idea is that, you know, the certain traditional structures of life, usually, you know, some kind of hidden knowledge, uh, access to like a supernal or subliminal world, uh, had been sort of cut off by sort of social factors, uh, which might even themselves be kind of an exoteric veil for sinister occult forces. And, uh, you know, that had cut off that connection and needed to be restored. That's the idea behind, you know, as you say, capital T traditionalism, not just the idea of, you know, certain practices being tried and true, you know, lowercase e traditionalism, but you know, sort of a, a movement originating in, in the 19th century, uh, early 20th century uh, with that goal in mind, uh, sort of that often look to, you know, before we started recording, Don, you know, mentioned theosophy. Uh, a lot of these movements would look to, you know, the East kind of with an Orientalist eye trying to uh, reclaim that sort of uh, primordial knowledge that uh, the West had, had been cut off from.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it? Do you think correct to think of this as something that this whole thing, the occult and all that, is something that started in the 19th century? Because there's, you know, it, it sort of, it gets a little muddy because it's always referencing these past things and it's trying to like draw a lineage to the past and, and all that. But it, it's kind of difficult to gauge how much of that is like authentic and, and real and how much of that is like a, a mythology that they created.
1: Well, yeah, it's a complex question because, like, when we speak in English, we use certain terms. Like, obviously, you know, the idea of the occult, like, that can be traced back, you know. Uh, obviously, there's, like, medieval Latin texts that will reference, like, the occult. Or we'll use these similar terms, like, uh, of uh, SO and Eso, uh the Islamic tradition. Obviously, the idea of, of Zahir and batin, you know, is a big thing. Uh, so these concepts of inside, outside, uh, like, uh, apparent and hidden... Uh, That dichotomy is a huge thing, you know, in in Islamic thought, for instance, uh, and, you know, in other uh, systems of thought. Of course, like there was like a wave of spiritualism of uh, like interest in the occult in the 19th century that has had a huge influence, you know, that we're a lot closer to. And so sometimes like it can be hard to sort of, uh, you know, it's rigorous historical work to get back to like the ideas uh, as they were in these, you know, what you could call esoteric or occult traditions without, you know, uh, having them be mediated by these kind of uh, 19th century thinkers who often might have certain very wacky or or misguided ideas. So, uh, yeah, but I would say, you know, to answer your question, uh, in short, I would say that uh, the occult as a theme is something that is relatively at the risk of generalizing, is relatively transcultural, but the occult tradition has been heavily mediated by the sort of clique of people that were deeply interested in this, uh, in the Western world in the 19th century for, for us and our ideas about it. And this goes into, you know, the way that people see the occult, uh, and esotericism as being kind of like silly or wacky or, or dumb, um, because of like those people themselves, you know, being uh, ridiculed at the time for, uh, legitimate and illegitimate reasons. And also their association with sort of, uh, theatrical or, you know, absurd activities like seances, uh, that type of thing, or a stage magic uh, or illusionism, but again, uh, even as I say that, that association uh, with uh, the occult and actually sort of uh, action uh, through the through ritual practice or transformation of the external world through ritual practice has also always been associated with theatricality and illusionism. So you know, uh, that's kind of a hedge in terms of what I just said, but
0: yeah, like you said, it's complicated, right? Yes, um, just just getting back to the idea of it being uh, them being kind of ridiculed for legitimate and illegitimate reasons. I, I've been reading this book off and on uh, called Against the Modern World by Mark Sedgwick, and it's a history of uh, capital T traditionalism. It talks about like Theosophy and um, Adam Blavatsky, who kind of was like, what the, I guess you could say, like the founder of it or one of the kind of premier originators uh Gwinnon all this kind of stuff traces up to the present day which I haven't got that far into it I'm mainly in the kind of the origin story right now but there's some really funny stories in here uh Blavatsky seems pretty much like a clear fraud like she she did these things where she would have like a seance and she's always very interested in like attracting kind of like like the upper crust to her meetings and, and stuff like that she was uh trying to hawk a couple books um i forgot the name of them but they had some goofy name like visions of isis or something yeah like yeah yeah
1: I, I know exactly what you're talking about although i also don't remember the exact yeah that was a big thing and you can even talk about that in terms of other philosophers like nietzsche you know greco-roman revival like bringing back the uh, the eleusian mysteries like that type of thing she was very much into but yeah sorry i continue
0: yeah yeah no problem um so like one of one of the things that was talking about was how she would like do a seance and like the seance is supposed to conjure up some kind of spirit that they would communicate with and uh the spirit would like drop a letter on the table in front of them like literally a, 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 like a piece of paper would fall to the table and this was because when everyone was like closing their eyes and like kind of like getting into the the mood or whatever she would have this like bamboo pole that she would raise above the table with the letter on it and like drop it from that and it would like float down to the table and then she would be like oh look the letter's been delivered you know so um you know there's a lot of weird stuff where it's like you can't tell how sincere someone like that is because she's clearly going through an effort to create this artifice and she you know obviously is like self-consciously acknowledging that the, the letter is not coming from some spirit she's doing it herself but you know at the same time like why go through all this mess and effort to uh to create this thing if if you you know like she wasn't like super wealthy or successful off of it i i don't think so it's kind of weird yeah
1: I mean, yeah, I would. I don't necessarily, like, have a psychoanalytic take on Blavatsky. But, yeah, I think she definitely is, like, a bit of, like, a grifter and a fraud. And she was heavily criticized by even, you know, other traditionalists. Like, uh, Guaynon was definitely, like, my favorite of that group uh, of people. Um, and, yeah, it's easy to ridicule a lot of these people. Um, but one thing that I will say, like, uh, for them... Uh, you know, Blavatsky in particular, she's definitely the most famous. And like, she's also uh, the most easy to kind of lambast. Uh, but one thing I will say for like the group in general, is that they were kind of were in a way at the vanguard of sort of the critique of like, uh, the Western sort of epistemology, uh, you know, the uh, idea of like, sort of uh, like before Derrida, before critical theory and all that stuff, sort of questioning, you know, the hegemony of science and, and rationalism and that type of stuff that, you know, we're now all familiar with, like if we have any kind of like, you know, if we've been to undergrad uh, recently or, uh, you know, to in an academic environment uh, in you know, uh, recent memory that kind of originates with uh, these people who are willing to take the premises of, you know, which they often misinterpreted, but they were able to take they were willing to take the premises of sort of traditional epistemologies or, you know, epistemologies from other cultures, alternative epistemologies seriously. So that is something that uh, can be said to their credit.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think there's something kind of interesting in in the, the way that it's always calling back to some kind of past that needs to be revived, uh, that that's where like the real truth is and that they live in like a a time of decline and confusion and stuff like that. There's a, there's always seems to be like this emphasis on Western civilization and modern civilization in decline. And that, you know, that's a common trope among right wing thought in general, I think. And there's a lot of sort of uh, overlap there, I think.
2: Yeah, I was going to, I mean, there's this, uh, you know, overarching sort of uh, connection between someone like Guaynon and uh, the you know, people make this connection a lot with far-right thought. And, you know, the almost like a tradition, you know, where nowadays people point to people like uh, Dugan or something like Duganism. And uh, it's, it's like almost like a rationalizing, a cynicism or something like that too, where it's like kind of gets like a mystic veneer for something that's quite cynical. And obviously you saw that in things like the Nazi uh, participation in some of these sort of ideological debates, like the strange quests and things that they went on and all that uh, related to this. And uh, I was wondering if you think that's something that's like inherent in that. I mean, if you're saying that uh, something that is, you know, connecting it to almost like a postmodernism or something, uh, I would hope that, you know, I mean, my my view would be that that, that's not inherently right-wing, but I mean, that is kind of a popular take too nowadays, even that there is this inherent connection between a postmodernism and uh, reactionary thought or something like especially say like the late Foucault or something people point to that a lot as uh, him uh, you know cozying up to reactionary thought they think so yeah
1: yeah it's it's an interesting question like uh, and the thing is like uh, you know one thing I always say like you know working as like an intellectual historian and like an historian of ideas like intellectual history isn't pretty and there aren't usually like very clear good guys and bad guys you know, they're all, like, intermixed with each other, and a lot of the time, like, you know, they're compromised in some ways, and they, you know, some of the things that they say, like, are valuable. It's very hard to, like, pick, like, a distinct team to root for, and a lot of, like, tendencies, you know, of course, Mussolini, for instance, like, being a socialist, like, early on, you know, like, a lot of these uh, ideas, like, you know, that uh, maybe people on the left would, uh, you know, consider to be, like, good, or want to have, like, a... a simplistic view of being unequivocally positive like Marx's ideas is they're hugely influential on the right wing of course like they're hugely influential in general and that's the case mm-hmm. of, of many of these things i like really when it comes down to this idea of like you know a glorious revival like you know uh and sort of a cyclical sense of history like that really is in Marx and uh the like the narrative of progress that the critique of that in a way, the right-wing thought that you're referring to kind of does hinge on this sort of flawed narrative of progress that I feel like traditionalists who wanted to talk about cyclical history, at least some of them, you know, going on as one, but there's also obviously this idea of glorious revival. But anyway, I digress. My point is that the narrative of progress, you know, that uh, some of these far-right thinkers view was something that these traditionalists in some cases did try to critique. And I think that now we're actually seeing, I think it's, you know, this idea of, historically, uh, history is being directed towards some sort of teleology of progress. I think we're definitely seeing that fall apart and these ideas of crisis or Kali Yuga that some of these traditionalists would entertain, uh, I think are uh, much more difficult to dismiss uh, compared to, you know, sort of a Fukuyama type narrative. So but yes, I you know, I think that it's a complicated issue, and you can't really extricate it, especially when you start looking back in history, like, you know, whether. Uh, something is usually these sort of broader intellectual trends, sort of the uh, issue of history. Was it moving towards something? Is it like, you know, a, a eternal recurrence of some kind? Those things, you know, exist on both sides. You can see it in aesthetic movements. You can see it in philosophical movements. You know, it's yeah, I don't know if it's inherently, I guess, maybe any intellectual trend that significant will be seized upon for by all sort of political actors, I guess.
2: Sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because like Evola is probably the most, he's probably the the one figure that is most obviously like a right-wing political figure. And he was actually critical of like fascist Italy and stuff like it. It didn't go far enough for him in a certain sense. And it's not as easy to just say, oh, well, he was even more extreme than Mussolini or something like that. Because I think that he had a different sense about what sort of a a new state or a new kind of politics or order should arise. And, uh, you, you know, it, I think you can clearly say like, it probably wouldn't have been very good. If it was definitely on the right wing side of things and all that, but it, it's still, uh, taking aim at like modernity and seeing that like even fascist Italy was taking up like certain aspects of modernity that he was, you know, fundamentally critical of and stuff like that. So it's just interesting cause they're, they're not, they don't neatly, fit into the kind of like left right thing exactly you know
1: yeah i think that few people do and like the sort of political paradigm that we operate by now has changed even so, like so much even since since that time i mean evola had a lot of like you know eh, wacky ideas like you know or like repugnant ideas like you know his racialist views and those were ideas that were repudiated by some attritionless uh, although they were embraced by some others and like encouraged in in other ways you know blavatsky also definitely flirted with like a kind of a kind of Aryanism but you know notions of like physiognomy racialist ideas like they also exist like on uh the political left and have like historically i mean like if you i mean marx is the one that keeps coming to mind as someone who you know to go back to this kind of idea of séances and that like uh you know the sort of vogue for séances in the 19th century You can see that, you know, being referenced in Capital, you know, the idea of commodity fetishism, really, like the whole idea of commodity fetishism is like a sort of parody or uh, a joke at the expense of, you know, certain cultures and certain like cultural ways of knowing. And, you know, it's sort of also inflected by sort of uh, spiritual ideas that were going on at the time. But to really say that, you know, Marx uh, says at one point in Capital, not to delve too deeply into him, but he says at one point in Capital, you know, we need to step outside, you know, or we need to step into the misty fog of like religious thought to make sense of this. We need to make analogy to the the hazy myths of, of the religious world with its suit, you know, but of course he's deeply embedded in that world. Uh, and, you know, he imagines himself as being outside of it, as a lot of these writers often do, they having a view from nowhere. But uh, really a lot of his ideas are, you know, defined, as he even says himself, like through reference to this, through this idea of kind of a hidden spirit. This is how he understands capitalism. This is how he critiques it, is these commodities have some kind of hidden spirit to them. And uh, so these notions are traveling, you know, very incestuously, you know, very promiscuously through all these intellectual circles uh, and touching all kinds of of political tendencies.
0: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, since we're talking about Marx, I guess even like the Nazis in Germany, they have roots in similar sorts of groups. Like I was listening to something that was talking about uh, synarchy and how this has a lot. There's a lot of connections between synarchy and these types of traditionalist, uh, esoteric kind of groups. And the Thule Society, I think it, that's how you pronounce it, started as one of these types of things. And um, interestingly enough, uh, it got its start in Istanbul. This German guy went to Istanbul and founded the group there. And that seemed to be the case for a lot of these groups, actually, and came back to Germany, Kind of made a, a branch of that group and that eventually became like the german something something party which then evolved into the, the national socialist party so it like has direct roots to these kinds of groups so um yeah it's just interesting you know it's it's something that we don't really learn much about i don't think we uh typically have a good way of understanding where they fit into history you know because certainly they're influential when you when you kind of dig into it, you can kind of see that they're like all over the place. These ideas are floating around all over the place, but uh, you know, you don't hear people talk about them openly, you know, they're, you know, I mean, it's funny because they're esoteric groups and they're all about like hidden knowledge and they've sort of become that themselves, you know?
1: No, I was just about to say that's the great irony, right? Like that, you know, this, uh, the occult has such an influence, but because of somehow through like the the negative associations that, you know, it's really in many ways always had, uh, but also certain ones that it's acquired, you know, it's sort of people don't have access to that knowledge. Like their diagnosis has become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that people are cut off from, you know, the way that symbols interact and have a really important impact in our world. I mean, you were mentioning the, the nazis like one figure who i think has had a huge influence who's still you know really uh talked about with reverence by people on like all sides of the political aisle but was like a very enthusiastic national socialist as heidegger uh whose ideas you know are very even though you know people think of them as being think of phenomenology of being sort of very scientific you know uh, very you know rooted in experience you know rejecting as heidegger had a position himself but it's also very mystical and it's based on you know uh kind of a ontological revolution, you know, and thought happening, all these same sort of tropes coming back. Uh And his thought, he's probably the most influential philosopher in, like, the American Academy, I would say. And, you know, he was a super big Nazi. And, you know, also he was very much steeped in that tradition of, you know, he had read, like, Rudolf Otto, you know, the idea of the holy. That, like, he was influenced by all these all these thinkers, you know, he was a reader of them. And he was, you know, immersed in that, in that culture. So, you know, the impact, it definitely, definitely remains. Uh, But yeah, it is occulted in a way.
2: I was also thinking that, you know, there's this, I mean, almost like in a crude way, there's this uh, tendency on, you know, lots of different types of radical movements to then, like on the left, to use a lot of this language of, uh, you know the fetishism and also you know related things around ideology to then set themselves up almost as using symbols in these kind of strange ways where, you know, they'll say to themselves, "We are the people who have this kind of almost uh, hidden knowledge of you know the way things are, and we have to kind of bring it to people, and uh, you know we you know we kind of see through the false consciousness and." I mean, on like as a radical activist, I think there is, you know, when I mean people, you know, when people have that worldview, sometimes it can kind of create this strange, uh, you know, it's cliche to call it religious, but it is, you know, it does have that kind of uh, sense to it where you're operating in the world as someone that has special knowledge about what what the future is going to be like, and you're operating almost as, as an independent agent, just imposing that view on people who are somehow, you know, either asleep or just sort of, you know, shambling through life, then you can kind of bring that to it. So I I think that that was a, you know, it's interesting to talk about the fetishism part because, you know, those kind of, that style of thinking at least has huge effects on politics uh, later on. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it like the people who uh, I feel like you're talking about would probably say that, you know, uh, Derrida was, you know, sort of a counter revolutionary or something for having like, you know, uh, certain critiques of the Soviet Union or having other being compromised in other ways. But what I will say uh, for him is that he did point out, you know, in his Spectres of Marx in 1993, that like Marx is obsessed with ghosts. Like, his work is suffused with ghosts and the supernatural. Like, uh, all of his, like, key metaphors, like, the way that he explains his concepts are in these terms. And uh, so the, it's inextricable from these ideas. Like, yes, the notion of false consciousness, as you say, I think uh, is it's right that this is kind of an idea of having a sort of hidden insight, uh, you know, a, a transcendent kind of view of uh, these things, you know, to kind of, to exercise like these sort of ghosts in a way. And I think that that was a really spot on uh, diagnosis uh, or a spot on appraisal uh, of Marx and a very insightful thing. And, you know, uh, it's hard to say like whether others notice. I mean, that's the most prominent sort of discussion of it. But I think that it really does scream out of Marx, these, you know, spiritual ideas, you know, even, you know, the idea like uh, his discussion of like sort of the, the blood libel uh, that kind of creeps into some of his work and his discussion of, of uh, Jews and that type of thing. And the the way that he he treats Christianity a lot of the time, you know, he is a person of the 19th century. And yeah, his thoughts are, are very, very haunted. Um, and people who, you know, take that as doctrine, they are, you know, they're following a doctrine that is also uh, haunted.
0: So to what extent can we take this kind of thing seriously? Because I mean, do we do we want to like look at these sorts of ideas and where we find like a, an influence of this kind of occult kind? Do we want to like reject it just out of hand? Like this is some kind of like fundamental mistake to to be thinking in this kind of way? Uh, because I I think that as we've been talking about, this is this is very much like something that we we don't really speak about. We don't really if you if you openly talk about things in these terms you're inviting ridicule like no one's going to really take you seriously but if we consider that this sort of thinking is is really important and influential throughout history on left right and everywhere what do we do with that like do we kind of do we embrace it do we maintain some kind of critical distance or or is it like what's what's the approach here
1: it's hard to say because I think it might actually be like a you can't win situation because my instinct is to say that, you know, no, we need to talk openly about it. We need to like speak and take seriously like some of these prepo- like prepositions. We need to take seriously, you know, the idea of demonic influences. We need to get seriously the idea of antichrist. But, you know, it, are those things ever going to be taken seriously? Like or is it part and parcel of them that they're not? Uh, is a part and parcel of the way that these things work that they cannot be taken seriously um, and that any attempt to do so, you know, uh, will not win. So, yeah, my instinct is to say, like, you know, we should talk about these things openly and ta- take these ideas seriously because they, you know, have an effect like these symbolic operations like do bear themselves out. But uh, will that work or are there sort of defense mechanisms built in? Like there's sort of uh, ridiculousness of it, the theatricality of it uh, sort of is in some way inherent to it where it will prevent it from, I mean, you know, and it will cause the sort of uh, the eschatological or the sort of teleological pattern from playing itself will just, you know, make it play itself out. Uh, So, yeah, I don't really know what the solution is.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess that gets into some of the question around the relationship between cultism and sort of broader types of religion kind of thing, or like, you know, I mean, like religion in general or something where, you know, I think people have to, you know, I mean, is there some sort of question there around whether people's everyday experience of religion, if they're religious, is, you know, similar in some way to having some sort of knowledge of, you know, the fantastical or the, you know, the, the sacred and profane or something like that, you know, like, is there is there something in that or is it something that only a select few people can really sort of push kind of thing because i keep thinking of you know i heard i heard i read i was reading some book about uh or like heard quote about something about uh um in medieval history a european medieval history about say like uh the eucharist in in christianity and there was this person uh you know this uh saying that for part of european history there was this problem where people didn't under like people didn't grasp the idea that the Eucharist would be something like the host or you know the you know the bread being made into Christ kind of thing. For a lot of time uh, the sort of mystical or fantastical or supernatural I guess like uh, was such a part of their everyday experience that the fact that a specific limited thing was fantastical uh, was a problem for them because it was like well why isn't everything like it's it was almost like a trying to divide the world into this, you know, narrow thing was the problem. And then as sort of, uh, you know, in early modernity and sort of as time kind of rolls on, there's this uh, division where the problem becomes, why is anything enchanted or something kind of thing? You know, why is anything fa- fantastical? Why would a piece of bread be fantastical? or something like that? So there's kind of the shift that, you know, this author says uh, happens where people shift from thinking why is there a specific uh you know why isn't there just a general awe kind of thing at creation to why would you have an awe at all about any aspect of it so i don't know if that you know I, i'm just trying to get through this you know this thing of uh you know is 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 this sort of mystical experience or something something that uh, is accessible to everyone in uh, yeah yeah, it, it's
1: true. I think there might be like some conflation in our talking about it, uh, especially like when yeah you cross the like modernity uh, pre-modernity divide. Uh, I think that you know if you really go deep into it, like a lot of the time there's usually like a ripple effect where like there's layers of like uh, truth. You know, like uh, for instance, like the really important idea in Islamic uh, in Sufism or you know in the kind of Akbarian tradition of thought. Wathat al even Ibn al-Arabi. His idea, uh, you know, that uh, everything, all the multiplicity that we see around us is just a veil or a screen for unity. That was widely adopted, you know, a very exciting idea to a lot of people. But of course, later on, people were like, well, you know, our intellectual idea of Wahad al that wajud that's just like a screen itself for the reality and then, and so on and so on. Uh, so I think that in like, you know, from our point of view, and I think this was, A point that the sort of traditionalists, you know, intellectual tendency made that, yeah, there's sort of, you know, there's been a severance from the sort of a a whole aspect of reality, you know, reality has kind of solidified or closed in on itself. And people, things have become ordinary in a way that they weren't before. And then, of course, you know, even in pre-modernity, there is an idea that, you know, the normal practice of religion isn't the, like, the real, the really real, you know, the like, uh, the, uh, of it, you know, the, the really real is something, something more, you know, and that varies in terms of like what it really is like, or, you know, what the, the real truth of things are. And like the, it varies based on the sort of like sociological position or the social position or the, you know, the, uh, sort of political aspects of things or, you know, the different positionalities, but, you know, that's, uh, basically, yeah, a consistent theme in the sort of pre modern esotericism and occultism that you know uh the religious practices or the sort of religious doctrines that people know like i'm reminded as you say that of uh haven yaksan which is like sort of a philosophical fable about like a dude who basically is kind of born well it's actually two they give two explanations of the story but either he's abandoned on a deserted island like as a baby or he's just like magically or not magically i shouldn't say kind of to make sure our terms are clear here but sort of just like a biogenically if genetically appears you know a biogenically appears and uh anyway so he somehow is able just by himself with no other people around basically figure out like the truth of islam and uh eventually someone comes to him from a civilization who's also kind of you know a world weary uh like dervish or a sufi type figure or a philosopher maybe would be more accurate but Uh, anyway, so then he explains to him, like, the actual doctrine of Islam, like, the external factors of it, like, who Muhammad was, like, all this stuff, and he's like, oh, yeah, that pretty much matches up with everything that I rabbit on my own, but, you know, I just got that from, like, raw empiricism, I know, like, the core of it. Uh, and so then he goes back with the friend that he made to society, and he's like, well, you know, I do have some misgivings, you know, they're saying i will got a boat back, I do have some misgivings about all the stuff you told me, like, why is the Qur'an so concerned with, you know, financial transactions? You know, why uh, is it all about, you know, like this type of thing? Why are there these sort of metaphors about about uh, heaven and hell? You know, these are not what I've experienced through my sort of meditations. It's not like how I've seen, like, supernal reality as being. Like, they seem kind of figurative. Like, why did the Prophet, you know, talk in this way? But then once he sees everyone and he interacts with them and he realizes, like, how venal and, like, you know, how prone to corruption they are then he's like, oh, wow, like, now I understand the insight of the prophet, you know, now I understand why he said all these things, because their their best hope for these people to not, you know, suffer is for them to just follow, you know, the guidelines as strictly as possible. And like, you know, this wisdom is only for like me and my buddy. And like, you know, those of us who really, uh, really get it, you know, but the rest of them, like, for their own sakes, like, it's just too much for them. And yeah, that's like a very, like, common idea, you know, that most people are like on the level of animals you know and only like the elect are in t- like you know they only have the sort of dignity only they have the dignity of like true spiritual enlightenment and yeah that's a very very like ubiquitous idea in these types of things which you know i'm like not necessarily down with i'm like you know more of an egalitarian persuasion most of the time although like sometimes one becomes frustrated with people you know in the same way but uh, yeah yeah, like I think that that is like sort of an aspect of it you could say that that very like you know intractable part of it you could say is you know uh, something that maybe creates the attraction for like the right wing or something so uh, yeah I guess that's a very long like uh, you know discursive answer to your question but uh, yeah, there you go. Basically, there's liars.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I, I mean, just on that sort of idea, uh, is there in Islam uh, an idea of like a degradation of the message of the prophet over time like that that uh, I think Tom had mentioned something like this before where I know that the Quran itself is is considered like preserved, but do people sort of is there a fading over time of the religion? Uh, from its sort of uh, you know basic truths, do people sort of fade away from it uh, within the sort of uh, history or the teleology or whatever you know, like the the overarching thing of the religion? I know, I know there was also before uh, the Quran, like there's there's the sense that things had degraded and had to be kind of uh, renewed or whatever, like uh, clarified. And uh, so, I mean, if the if that's the case, I mean, that would be that would sort of play into the sort of traditionalist epistemology or something like that. So yeah, Uh,
1: well, there's like many answers uh, on one hand, like on one hand, definitely like everyone in history is always complaining about like everyone having fallen away from their religion or like the good way that things were done in the past. It's like a ubiquitous thing I feel like in, in history. Uh, And in terms of, in terms of Islam, you know, there's always this, you know, lots of different figures, you know, such as Ibn al-Arabi himself, who I mentioned, you know, being sort of the a seal, or, you know, al-Ghazali as being, like, sort of the uh, the reviver of Islam, you know, the, the, the revival of the religious sciences, that type of thing. So uh, there's always, like, this I- very ubiquitous idea that uh, things have fallen away. And another thing which is kind of uh, more uh, what's going on in the Hei bin Yaqsam story is that there's many various interpretations of like the quran and people with who have a claim to esoteric knowledge can interpret these like in all different various ways depending on how like you know intense they are like they could say like they could just look at the individual letters and like decode some sort of alternate meaning you know there or they could say you know like uh, for instance in that story the idea that oh these heaven and hell things that's just figurative but they're necessary to like keep people on the straight and narrow You know, that uh, type of thing. You know, that's like a philosopher idea, you know, not necessarily endorsed by by the Orthodox uh, Sufis who definitely would uh, believe in in these realities in in various different ways. But yeah, so there's definitely like uh, in terms of the sort of degradation of the message, like, you know, there's an idea of like failures of interpretation, both in of the Quran itself, the prophetic traditions and also like of, you know, various influential figures, you know, people will say like, oh, they're misunderstanding, you know, the statements of the people in our Artharica, which are often like very sort of arcane a lot of the time and open to, to various interpretations uh, by design. And in addition to that, there is, you know, the idea that people have kind of, you know, just in general kind of uh, become become lax and, and fallen from like their, their religious duties. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, many layers, I would say say so there in, in Islamic history.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would just add to that that there are there are like actual hadiths that pretty clearly indicate some sense of this where there's a, there's an understanding that the the people who have the most correct like the most reliable interpretation of the religion as a whole are the people closest to the time of the prophet so the prophet and his companions and then the generation after and the generation after and this is where the whole concept of like salafism comes from is like well you know it's been 1400 years 1500 years and now we're in this really awful post colonial situation we've fallen from grace as a civilization i think what we need to do is go right back to the source wipe out all that in between and, and just follow the religion exactly as uh, as best we can as the the companions the earliest people did and that's that idea in itself is not something that they just made up that does come from the tradition it's just that they interpreted it in a much more uh, I mean I would say like it, in, a, in a new way where it means like all of the history in between the time of the prophet and today are, you know incorrect or like not not really worth as much as just following what our understanding of what the companions understood was
1: yeah in a a way it was an anti-traditional move because the Mm. premise of the whole tradition previously had been that it all was a chain going back to like the Salaf the companions you know Abu Bakr Ali you know uh and that it was you know a verifiable like trusted legitimate chain going back to them but Salafis a lot of the time Uh, say otherwise, uh, that there are sort of deviations and and innovations uh, that were originated. I feel like I also should, just to be fair, mention that, you know, like, Shia, like, obviously, often have, like, you know, different interpretations of certain things in the Quran, or see proofs for, you know, Ali's sort of, you know, favored status in uh, certain ayah that Sunnis don't necessarily see. So there's, like, definitely one example of differing interpretations. And there have actually been, you know, like uh, Hulat groups, like which are sort of ex- extre- like extremist or, you know, literally like exaggerator uh, Shias, which was a term that was applied to them by other Shias because they felt that they were exaggerating Ali's virtues. But groups like that would say things like a one-tenth of the Quran was fabricated or lost or something, or that, you know, even one of my favorite, uh, which I'll never forget, is uh, there was a group that was called like uh, the Goreba or like the Ravens. Uh, and they basically believed that Muhammad and Ali were so similar, they were like two ravens. And the angel Jabril actually got confused and he brought uh the Quran to the wrong person when it had actually been intended uh for <laughs> Ali. And uh yeah, so uh they're all and those, you know, people are really some of the ones who actually honestly like uh, originate some of the ideas of like the man of light, you know, lecherism like they're at the forefront of some of those ideas that became mm-hmm. later on a bit more orthodox, you know, but of course there's many permutations of, of those ideas, but you know, in fairness I felt I should mention them
0: sure yeah i think yeah. i think some of those kind of splinter sects have very interesting little stories like i think i've heard about one where like a goat ate some of the quran that's been lost or something yeah. it's just kind of amusing yeah to think that's a about, favorite like, of, of
1: islamophobes yeah i've heard, like heard that one trotted out on on twitter by like the you know uh anti-islam brigade like a couple of times like you know a goat ate the quran or something uh some pages of it but
0: yeah yeah um but yeah, just to get back to some of the hadith, I guess, there's also like uh, one that talks about how there will be like a righteous caliphate that will have uh, a certain number of rulers, different Hadiths have different numbers, and then it will kind of revert to, or like the the situation will revert to that of, of kings and they will be like fairly good. And it basically it just kind of will get worse and worse, like each, it'll, there'll just be like a constant regression from the... Uh, the kind of like the zenith that is the reign of the, the righteous caliphs um, and then there's also an idea that is present in a few different hadith that i can think of that talk about religious knowledge being lost over time to the extent that at the end of time people will will know nothing except the name of god they'll just kind of say allah and that's all they'll know of, of religion anymore and, and, you know, this this comes all up to the point of, like, Mahdi and Jesus coming back and all that. So, like, then the whole big show starts. But, like, up until that point, yeah, there there is a, an idea of things kind of being in perpetual decline up to that point. Um, I'm not sure. It, like, that clearly is present in the Western intellectual tradition. I don't know how much of that is part of, like, the Christian tradition specifically. Do you know? don
2: um i don't see i don't i'm not exactly sure about decline as like a long-term process i know obviously it like at the very end it's supposed to be that there well i mean there's there's two different there's two related things there's 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 one problem which is is existing worldly society good uh at any given point and that's usually not good like it's usually it's usually like, I mean, the answer is usually negative kind of thing. Like it's a, that, so anytime that you're like looking around, you would see signs that things are pretty bad and whatever, but you're not supposed to, there is this tradition also, that you're not really supposed to speculate. I mean, in, in the Catholic tradition, I mean, within the, obviously the a lot of fundamentalists or different evangelicals in the United States uh, or other, I mean, and, and in, within even the Catholic faith, there's always been this focus on the end times, whatever, as a, major you know sometimes people do think it's imminent and stuff but within the actual ideological i mean like the you know theological tradition you're not really supposed to speculate on that supposed to live as if you are you know in kind of that dual way of live as if you could die any time but also live not expecting to like see the end times in your you know in your immediate experience so then within the actual end times sort of narrative within revelation it it does have you know the idea that you know large sections of the population are not religious anymore or whatever or or somehow not maybe not not religious but somehow you know fallen in some way or whatever and uh, that people will be fooled very easily by you know all these terrible things happening like all these wars and all this kind of stuff but it is pretty much it's it's different in the way that it's it's much more it, it's it's much more very directly like an like a like the narrative is much more mystical and kind of an explicit kind of strange way or something like that. It's not really like a you know not not much of the rest of the Bible actually talks about this kind of stuff in the same way kind of thing. It just like there's this very specific kind of narrative but you know in the rest of it it's more kind of uh, focusing on the issue of redemption and all these kind of things, right? So I mean, but I think that the problem that you know is the uh, is more how do you interact with a world that is clearly um, fallen in some way, like has has lots of different problems uh, and challenges and risks and stuff for you as a believer kind of thing. And um, so I think, anyway, so that's that's the whole, you know, the three pieces of it, of that kind of sort of teleology, I mean, like a, um, eschatology, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think there's similar stuff in Islam as well. You know, there's always an emphasis that you no one knows the hour, that type of thing. But at the same, and yet, you know, it's the same where people are very much uh, interested in speculating or convinced that they are, you know, living in in the end times. Actually, to relate it back to the to the hadith, it's one of my favorite ones is uh, that the Prophet kind of held two fingers, you know, apart and said, you know, we're this close to to the last day. And I, uh, I love that Hadith because, like, if you think about it, like, a, like you know, a lot of people, like, at first, when you hear it, you're like, oh, well, uh, that was a failed prophecy, you know, uh, because obviously here we are in the year 2020 and there's no apocalypse. But on the other hand, if you think about that in the whole scheme of history, you know, in the whole age of the earth, in a way, you know, uh, it may very well uh, bear itself out uh, to be correct. Um yeah i myself you know always do feel like you know this is it like you know uh like the, we're, we're headed towards disaster and i almost feel like that is a more appealing or you know a narrative that rings truer than one of you know progress towards like you know some great destiny or something that is just a sort of crisis unfurling across the ages to this you know great you know cataclysm
0: yeah i, I mean <laughs> i i think i feel Kind of similarly, and it it makes me relate to like the stuff we were talking about earlier on. I don't know, like some of their ideas, I I feel pretty inclined to agree with at least the general thrust of the argument, like the ideas in particular about like the criticisms of modernity and the way that people now interpret the world and that kind of stuff. You know, I don't follow them all the way down the line, but, you know, they're onto something, I think. And I think that there's... Religion, like, that isn't part of these sorts of, you know, if, if we want to even think of these esoteric groups as religious, but uh, I think religion offers you a way to deal with the fact that the world isn't great, it's never probably ever going to be super great, uh, and that we aren't necessarily on some kind of, like, just constant upward trend of progress and everything getting better all the time, that... Let's you like function you know it tells you like how to deal with that fact and to to focus on things that kind of transcend that and i think that's you know that's the way to do it you know you you, you don't want to get too fixated on the idea of like oh things are in decline or also be put on like rosy uh what was it rosy glasses and just sort of look at things like it's always just going to get better and ignore you know the problems in the world because that's also going to At some point you're going to run into the brick wall of reality and that's not going to be great. So yeah, I don't know. There's there's something to that, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, it's a a way to kind of make sense of some of these, you know, events and to, to, I think to deal with them in like an, an appropriate way. And yeah, I think that a lot of the like pain that is caused is kind of from the flailing that sort of results from the aversion to some of like the ideas that would be like considered within the category of, of religion or or metaphysics and sort of the, the resistance to them, I think does kind of uh, result in, in a lot of pain. But I think that again, yeah, to go back to sort of uh, earlier parts of the discussion, it's in a way uh, an inevitable kind of like self-fulfilling thing because that's what, uh, you know, these traditions have always expected. Uh, that's what they're kind of, you know, their 19th century mediators also expected, you know, in that great time of upheaval, the 19th century, you know, uh, where just everything was being shattered by like, you know, things to do with evolution, you know, industrialization, like all this stuff, you know, uh, a lot of them were very prescient and kind of seeing the way that things would go, even if they were kind of of an apocalyptic mentality. And yeah, I think that, you know, it is uh, it's valuable. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. I I think the idea of like flailing is a really good way to put it because you can flail in a way that's like, oh, we got to keep everything together, or flail in a way that's like, oh, everything's great. We should just keep doing more of this. And I think that the answer is really just like, just do your thing. You know, like maintain whatever duties you have, your obligations that you have. Keep that up. Just keep doing the right thing. Know that you're. You're not necessarily part of some grand project that will revive the, you know, the world or, or that is pushing things onward and upwards, you know, just kind of do your thing and live your life. And then, you know, that's all you can really do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I also, I mean, it's making me think more about just, uh, yeah, I don't know, just the, the worldview of a religious person, uh, as you know, this, the reality of the symbols and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I, I don't have much to add, but just, you know, just to. It's helping me along. So, yeah.
0: Cool. Okay, then. So, yeah, let's get into some questions here. Um, Okay, this first one. In his new song, rapper Blueface incorrectly postulates that if you're scared, you should pray to the Pope. My question is, when will Don step up to do Catholic outreach to the hip-hop community by teaching them the Catechism and Catholic teachings? He could fulfill a Catholic role like Louis Farrakhan has done for Islam. I hope I pronounced that right. Catechism.
2: Catechism. Catechism. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> No problem. Um, yeah, I was thinking of uh, maybe joining KRS-One at the Temple of Hip-Hop and, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we could uh, teach the, together. I don't know. I've actually thought about doing that kind of stuff in the future, um, you know, the that kind of teaching and stuff. I think that'd be cool, like the small groups and stuff. I'd have to see, though. I don't know. Uh, I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it'd be fun
0: um like the the, the hip-hop community specifically. no no no
2: <laughs> not the hip-hop community specifically but just like you know learning more about theology and how it and then being able to teach it in turn kind of thing so yeah sure
0: all right next question here is why are people terrible what do you think well i don't i don't think people are terrible Really, I, I mean, I think people do terrible things. I think some people are terrible. I think overall, I wouldn't judge most people as being terrible. So it depends how, you, how this, you want to take this question. Is is it like, why do people do terrible things? Or why are some people just so terrible, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, not like, you know, uh, to weigh in myself, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I would like, I feel like maybe people. Yeah, I would say people are terrible, but. I mean, in general, like, people as, like, humanity, it's terrible, but there's also wonderful aspects of it. Um, Maybe, like, people are terrible uh, to bring the wonderful aspects into relief. Could be, you know, uh, that's a stab at an explanation.
2: Yeah. I feel like maybe, uh, in a crude way, like, uh, people are, like, 80% pretty good and then 20% crazy. And then, uh, that what ends up happening is that, uh, you only notice that 20% when it kind of affects you usually, but like, just, just, I don't know. I, I always feel like I'm in a fleeing movie or something, just like surrounded by people who are exaggerated, weird characters getting too close and stuff. And I just, you know, I don't like it. So, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I definitely know what you mean. <laughs> mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, whenever I think about stuff like this, I, I kind of. <laughs> For some reason I always think of like driving and like the highway and how there's these people like just driving these 2-ton like hunks of metal at like 90 miles an hour and there's just so few accidents when you consider what's actually happening and it's all just dictated by the fact that there's like these little paint marks on the on the on the road and okay. that just is pretty amazing to me and You know, I I think that kind of like, you know, that's sort of like a metaphor. You can elaborate that out to like all of society and stuff. So, like, considering what we have to work with, I don't think we're doing too bad. But um, yeah, you know, uh, we're not uh, we're not perfect, and that's just going to be something that you're going to notice and uh, just kind of got to live with it. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of this kind of longish quote from Ali. Uh, like Imam Ali, and uh, the first part of the quote talks about, you know, it, he's responding to someone who's cursing the world, and he says like, "Well, when did the world ever deceive you?" Like it's pretty apparent that the world is bad. Like you, you know, you, you, uh, you your mother got sick and you prayed and she still died, and and you know, like th- just things are bad all over. Um, and I, I always like that part, but the second part is actually kind of ringing. Um, a little bit more in my ear right now where he talks about like this world was made for as a place for you to like do good deeds it's a it's it's like a a field for you to sow crops you know like to to kind of like invest in and it's a place for you to exert yourself and it's not necessarily like a, a a good place right like it's it's more like a place for you to to work and then you'll benefit from that later um so yeah that's why that's why people are terrible and that's why things are terrible. And I think the reason things are terrible is often because of the terrible stuff that people do. Uh, well, if we were not here, I imagine things would be a lot more pleasant, but, uh, that's just not how it is. You know, it it is the way it is for a reason. Um, okay. Next question here. Are there some things that are better left unsaid? Yes. Sure. Next question. <laughs> Um, when I'm having a bad night and spiraling into depression, nothing comforts me like hearing Don's voice. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. No question there. Just a nice comment. Yeah. Um, okay. What are your thoughts on schools reopening in the United States? All right. So this is a little bit of a Corona related question, but we can do this one.
2: Um, as, yeah, as a foreigner, I would say that, uh, I, and maybe, uh, related to Canada. I don't know. I, it's, I guess, you know, I I kind of think of it in two ways. I kind of have to remind myself that like students have goals. So like, they you know, like, or like parents have goals for the students kind of thing, like where they kind of have to, like, say they want to become a doctor, you know, they have to learn this kind of stuff now so that they can, you know, they might be taking high school biology so that they can apply to medical school or something like that. So it's very time, you know, they don't want to lose a few years of their life early on and do that. For me, I'm like, you know, maybe because I used to read a lot of Maoist stuff, I'm like, just shut down the schools for a few years or something. I don't know. I don't I don't see the, you know, might as well just do that. Might as well. Uh, all the like uh, strange, like, I feel so sorry for a lot of the teachers and stuff that have to do, you know, like distance education, but like flex kind of thing, like you're teaching. Like I heard uh, one of the options that was being promoted was that uh, a small group of students could come and then the rest would be doing it by video link. And that's just like a nightmare to me. I can't imagine wanting to teach that or something. So, and uh I don't know. I feel like uh it's not like, I, I don't know. Like it's just, you know, and I guess people have been kind of making this comment too that it's like warehousing students kind of thing. They're just, it's so that the parents can work and stuff. But I don't know. I feel like uh this is such a it's hit us just you know it's just blindsided us the whole crisis in a way that uh, the trying to retain a sense of normalcy uh, in these kind of half-assed ways always seems like it's just backfiring so yeah
0: yeah uh the thing that comes to mind for me is like it I think if everyone had like equal access to things like the internet and, and like a an appropriate like learning environment at home and all that kind of stuff that e-learning would be like a good response until they've really sorted this situation out but that's just not the case and i don't think that they are going to try to amend that anytime soon so i honestly do not know what the right move is i i my first instinct is you know just keep it closed right but there's so many issues that come up because of that and Yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a really difficult situation. I don't know how much the whole like loss of, of time in terms of like the students education is, I I feel like that is, it's yes, it's a thing, but I I don't know my, something about that just seems like, well, everyone's going to be kind of on the same playing field as far as this goes. And I I don't know, I, I, I feel like people can catch up to where they need to be assuming that this kind of blows over in a couple of years at least or something.
1: Yeah, I feel like it kind of depends on the school. Like in terms of like high school and anything below that, I feel like that's mostly like an institution that exists like for socialization for the most part. Yeah, like exactly. I don't think you're missing too much in terms of education that you couldn't get at home if you made the effort, like, you know, mm-hmm. if uh you know, and I don't think that even if you didn't make the effort, you'd be missing like that much you know versus like what you would just encounter like in your day-to-day life at like uh higher levels like yeah maybe it's a little bit more of like uh like an issue but i think that at those levels like you know there's a lot more range of wider range of options in terms of what you can do like uh you know in terms of like opening libraries or yeah i think e-learning is like uh you know more viable uh, in some ways at like the you know higher education level but Yeah, like you said, uh, not really qualified to like expound on this and yeah, it's a huge issue.
0: Right. I felt like at least for me at college, I felt like I a lot of the stuff that I was doing was on my own. Like I was you know, you do huge amounts of reading and you are writing papers and stuff, and then you just like meet with a professor once or twice a week and you kinda it's like a check in thing and you know, you present your your, your writing or you, you talk about the stuff you've been reading or whatever. I don't know if that is really, like, impacted by an e-learning situation that much. Like, clearly it's always better to do this in person. But given the circumstances, I don't think that's a bad substitute. But that being said, I, I might consider, if I was in college right now, I, I would consider uh, just dropping out and going back later, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. I personally wouldn't be able to handle it. I just wouldn't be able to, like, just just with everything else going on too. Not just like, yeah, not not just the the actual workload and stuff, but also like, you know, just turning on the news and not, you know, n- it not being good. <laughs> I don't know. So like, yeah. yeah,
0: does that stuff really bother you guys? I he- I see people talking about that. Like, oh man, it's just weighing on me, and it. I don't know. I, maybe I'm <laughs> like. <laughs> i don't it just doesn't bother me that much Is i i feel like the news is always like that to some extent like clearly this is worse it's different etc but i don't know it,
1: it, i think there's a certain psychic toll yeah it's not like at the forefront of my mind where it's like you know but uh you know i do think like to be honest there is a certain psychic toll to the uncertainty of the future like you know uh we really don't know like how things are going to develop from here and like that as like you know just having that sort of lurking in the back of your mind like the kind of worry about the future I think is kind of a, a stressful thing that kind of adds up um but I mean I also do like see your point where yeah there's a little bit of uh, melodrama in like some you know cases of of you know when this is expressed but yeah I, I definitely understand the psychic toll that it can take as well
0: I'm not even trying to, I'm not accusing anybody of like melodrama. I'm not saying that, like, I, I think it's me that's the the weird one here. I, I, I yeah. see enough people and it seems like a perfectly reasonable response, but I just don't experience that. And I wonder if that's because I, I feel weirdly hopeful because it's so uncertain. And I, I think the certainty that we had before was really dreadful. Like just to know that things were going to continue on in this way seemed pretty dire and bad like it was just heading towards a climate apocalypse and just like you know this kind of thing um and now that it's like oh man the, the elites don't know what to do well good maybe they'll have to figure out like that they got to do the right thing now or, or it's all over i don't know that's helpful
1: yeah. yeah i don't know yeah i haven't had any such thoughts i've only thought like oh man things are you know getting getting worse let you know as we were saying earlier like isn't nec- you know there's ways to to deal with that, or to kind of, like, you know, take it in stride when things start to, uh, you know, deteriorate, uh, but, yeah, I haven't, I think that in some ways I have, like, you know, because I'm sort of a solitary person, like, just, like, what I do, like, you know, reading and writing, like, it's, you know, solitary thing, so, and, so, yeah, I think, I think it hasn't had the same toll on me that it may have had on others, uh, so I think in that respect, yeah, like, uh, you know, I also have the eccentricity where I haven't been as impacted, at, uh, as others, but, in terms of, like, seeing this as, uh, you know, as a hopeful moment. Like, I, I haven't really, you know. I just feel like, uh, especially here in the United States, where it's just been so botched, um, yeah. you know. I, yeah, I'm just like, this is going to... Yeah, I, I try to hold out hope that uh, each sort of escalation or, you know, the opposite is, like, you know, it's going to somehow stop the stop the slide uh, there. But, I yeah, I, for the most part, I've been like, uh, this is... I don't know if uh, this will, I don't know, yeah, I guess maybe I'm a pessimist in that way because I don't see, like, the behavior of the elites changing or the people being able to sort of wrest uh, control from them, uh, like, uh, as a result of of this. Uh, My instinct is, and I may be wrong, but my instinct is that things are going to get more dire as a result. But
0: yeah, Yeah. Uh, not to be a towner, but yeah. No, you know, I I think that makes sense. It's sort of like we all got kidnapped and we're in the back of a van. We're all tied up and tape over our mouths and stuff. And they're trying to drive us off somewhere. And we're like, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen? But then something happens, like they got a flat tire and they crashed or whatever. And now they're in a bad situation, too. And it's like, well, maybe this is our chance, but it could also (laughs) just get a lot worse.
2: Yeah. 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 That made me kind of think through what I was, what I was feeling about that. It was that, uh, I guess to almost contradict myself anyways, but like, uh, I, I find like, a, I think I would just find it annoying to be in school is the thing, the kind of thing. It's not like, uh, you know, like, it's not like, it's not like I was be depressed about what's going on really, but it's more, uh, it's more like I can just imagine being in like a high stakes high cost program or something and having to do like a full school load, you know, like full uh, course load and uh, just feeling like, uh, you know, not wanting to do, you know, 20 hours of uh, video meetings a week or something and all that kind of stuff. I kind think of like, I just What's find the
0: point kind of a thing?
2: Not even what's the point, but just kind of like uh, just finding it like irritating or something like just kind yeah. of like, for me that would be like why I wouldn't enroll in the first place and why I'd be fine with the, school shutting down completely except for like maybe research students and stuff like that but uh but on the other end of that it also made me realize that I was like yeah but because I feel like it's low stakes like I could see taking a course or two and just kind of doing that chipping away at something because that would be fine with me because it's like well you know it's just some online thing and it's all like the world's crazy anyways so i could just do that and it, it would be like a little bit irritating but i could learn some stuff and just do that like it, it feels like the stakes would be so low for me then that i wouldn't make me irritated or anxious or anything so yeah yeah,
1: i think like you know when this all happens, like even if for a split second like there's a thought you know like is my life in danger? Like, are my loved ones going to be in danger? You know, is like my livelihood in danger? Like, you know, things like there's a sense of like a real, like kind of imminent threat that didn't exist before that kind of emerged with this pandemic. And I think that in certain situations where, like, you know, you're talking about something like, I don't know, like, writing like like for instance in my situation like writing about like you know the like early 16th century like you know uh esotericism or like uh occult practices you're like man you know like uh is this like you know sometimes the like the kind of noonday demon uh can come to you i think and like kind of make like what's the point of of doing this like when that's kind of uh in the background like or when you know to go back to the idea of stakes i think when people are like oh you know we really got to like finish this this project you know this is really you know important for the field or whatever you know like it's like well yeah. like are we all gonna die like you know like <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. just like but sure. i do think like you know to go like maybe to go back on the idea of hope i do think that's that is also like valuable in a way to have like this kind of like reminder to have a shake up and to think about like what really matters and one's priorities so yeah sure.
0: yeah, yeah. All right, we'll finish off with a few lighthearted ones here. Uh, what are your opinions on Eight Mile? Uh, so I personally think that it's a, a a much better version of the rap musical that was popularized with Hamilton. But uh, yeah, you can see a lot of sort of precedent that was established in Eight Mile and that was like ca- carried out in on in mm-hmm. Hamilton in, in sure. uh, kind of more spectacular form. Real. Mm-hmm
1: yeah i really think stylistically like hamilton most resembles eminem of like any prominent rapper and i say that <laughs> at, like you know and i say that as like an eminem fan like going like way back you know uh yeah like uh and you know i will say eminem like is interesting he's like a nebulously kind of islamic figure in a way you know uh bagpipes really? from baghdad. you know well he says alhamdulillah and bagpipes from baghdad um, I remember <laughs> looking it up on rap genius and someone had written it as like hum Didi da or something. I'm like, now you're saying no, hum <laughs> um, but, uh, um, but yeah, uh, no, I, 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 like eight mile, um, you know, pretty well. Uh, yeah, I agree with Tom's remark.
2: Um, I never saw the actual movie, uh, just because I, I like the, you know, I like the, whatever it's called yourself. What is it? I can't remember. Uh, lose yourself, lose yourself. Yeah. The song from it. But, uh, I never actually saw the actual movie because I felt like, yeah, I don't know, like I feel like I got everything I needed from the trailer. Like I knew the entire story from it kind of thing. Yeah, you know pretty I mean? much. I was pretty like, much. that's just what's going to happen. And I was like, I don't actually have to see it because, I don't know, I just felt like it would be a chore to actually sit through it or whatever.
0: So, but uh, um, I do like the song though. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this one here says, Don Hughes is to Catholicism as... Jan Hus is to Protestantism. So again, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. All these exotic Christian things are difficult for me to pronounce. But uh, that's the guy that founded Hussism, right? Or the Hussites?
2: I think that's. A, I I don't know much about this, but it's like I think he was like a Dutch reformer or something. I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I'm, gonna I'm gonna Google to make sure that I. Uh, um, he's just like a Calvinist, early Calvinist or something. Okay, so he is uh, from Czechia, like the Czech Republic, I guess. I think they
0: called it Czechia now.
2: Yeah. Oh, they do call
0: it Czechia. I Um, think. Yeah, I think they renamed it recently.
2: uh, Oh, really? Um, Jan Hus. Okay, so he was Czech. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hussitism, predecessor to Protestantism. No, I don't know anything about this.
0: All I know, no. I, I know that that's a thing because it's in a Civilization Six mod that adds more religions, and that's one of the oh, yeah. Christian ones that's always left over after everyone takes Catholicism and stuff. Sure. Which sort part. of sums it up, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, I was
1: uh, just going to say, I wonder what like the analogy to Don is, like what the principle of the comparison.
2: Is. I guess they're saying that I'm, like, a proto-reformer for the Catholic Church or something. Oh. I don't know. So, uh, I don't know. I will say, possibly, you know, stay tuned. That's what I'll say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we, we really need to get a, a Protestant on here to kind of explain the, what, yeah. what, the, what the heck's going on over there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, all right. Would Tom support the building of a memorial to the victims of female illiteracy? Uh, yes, I would. Uh, I, I'm kind of in a dilemma here. I've been thinking about this. So the idea that comes to mind is a statue of a woman with a book in her lap looking very perplexed and like she's, you know, just can't tell what's going on in the book. And in the book, it just says freedom across the page. <laughs> but the thing is, building statues is haram because it will lead to people... You know, revering this person as some sort of deity eventually. So, yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation. I'm re- I'm not really sure what a what a good alternative would be.
2: Could you have like a, a conceptual statue? Like yeah, uh, some, yeah. You know, I believe some sort so. Of...
0: It's the figurative nature of it because yeah. it'll. It could yeah, yeah. It could just be like a bunch
1: of gibberish, like what women see when they look at a page. You know.
0: Sure. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll just put like uh, some Korean letters up there or something. <laughs> okay. Um, and here's a question: Could you two please remake the chunky load episode of No Goals? Also, if you have Sleepy Girl on as a guest, that would be nice. So this is uh maybe the second or third time that people have requested that uh Sleepy Girl comes on here. So yeah, maybe we'll do that. What do you think, Don?
2: Yeah, we'll see. She's quite vulgar, but uh we can uh, maybe have her on.
0: You will have to figure out like a a bleep kind yeah. of thing, a little button. Sure. But yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Uh, all right, so that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for coming on again, Khalid. That was a really uh, interesting chat about esotericism and all that fun thanks stuff. Thanks for
2: having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on.
0: Uh, we will probably be doing another episode pretty similar to this one about Rene Guinan specifically. Uh, we were planning on doing that with a uh, second guest in addition to Khalid, but he couldn't make it. So we decided to do something that was a little bit more generalized and then we'll do that specific episode later on. So stay tuned for that. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like a second episode of you can't win every week, you can subscribe to our Patreon and you will get that as well as access to our discord where you can chat with us in our community. So, uh, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again next week.